I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, produced by Goldberry Studios and post-produced by Logan Green. We got to give Logan a shout out. So we'll do it at the top of the show to make sure that people hear it. So thanks to Logan Green for all of his hard work making us sound, uh, sound better and cutting out parts of the podcast that don't make any sense every now and then. We're here to discuss Daphne du Maurier's novel, Rebecca. This is the Q&A episode. You sent in a lot of questions, a couple via email, and then a bunch on the Facebook page. And we're going to get to those in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you that our next book is Jane Eyre. And Karen Swallow Pryor will be joining us for those episodes. So get ready for that. We're going to be using her edition. I know that there was um, some issues with there not being enough copies out in the world, but I believe they've begun shipping them again. So hopefully everybody that ordered uh, the edition that Karen edited will will be able to get that in time. And we're going to discuss the first five chapters uh, for next week's episode. So just wanted to make sure that everyone knew about that. Tim, let's do at the top of the show. What's going on with the plays the thing before we dive into these questions? I'm going to ask you a question, Tim. What is going on with the plays the thing? And now on this Q&A episode, it is your turn to answer the question. We just released an interview with James Shapiro, who wrote a book called Shakespeare in a Divided America, which is a superb book, so superb, that it was one of the New York Times' 10 notables for 2020. And he is a finalist for the National Book Award. So I'm going to recommend the podcast- And But I also want to recommend that people buy their copies of Shakespeare in a Divided America from Goldberry Books. (laughs) It's really a worthwhile read. It's a fascinating read. I'll just preview it a little bit. Um, James Shapiro, Dr. Shapiro, insisted that I call him Jim. So I'm going to call him. Say no more. Um, We talked about Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth as they both loved Shakespeare loved Shakespeare, but they read Shakespeare in very different ways, as you can imagine. John Wilkes Booth kind of read Julius Caesar as, hey, this is like encouraging me to take down this tyrant that was Abraham Lincoln. And of course, Abraham Lincoln has a very different way of reading Shakespeare. And by the way, uh, James Shapiro said, he says something really remarkable on the show. Um, He thinks that Abraham Lincoln is the best reader of Shakespeare in American history. So. Uh, that was our latest offering. Heidi, myself, and Sarah Jane Bentley are in the middle of recording Romeo and Juliet in time for a PBS production of Romeo and Juliet as performed from by the Royal Shakespeare Academy, the Royal Shakespeare Theater, or maybe the National Theater, forgive me, I can't remember, on uh, April 23rd. So the podcast will kind of culminate with that production, which hopefully everybody that gets PBS will be able to see. Everybody can get PBS, I think, because it's, it's, pu- it's public broadcasting. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, that, you guys have been killing it. So good job by you guys. Um, make sure, please do check that out. If you haven't subscribed, hit that little subscribe button wherever you get podcasts for The Plays the Thing. And of course, you can also do the same thing for The Daily Poem if you have never, if you've never done that. That's a podcast in which we share a poem on a daily basis. So, you know, it's right there in the name, but we would uh, love to have you, have you join us for that. Let's, let's answer some questions now. We've got so many questions, so many, just, just a lot, just very, very many. And let's start with this one from Katie Patton. 
Heidi, I want to turn this one to you first. And she says, how related is Gothic literature to romantic literature? Where do they overlap and what are the differences? Now, I didn't tell you that you were going to have to answer this one ahead of time to either of you. So we'll see how you do uh, doing this off the cuff. But I do think that since we've talked about how this is a Gothic novel and how there are these all these different elements of the Gothic novel that have shown up in Rebecca, let, just kind of offering a larger context for that for that idea might be helpful for, for people who want to know more about it. And of course, we're going to do another Gothic novel next in Jane Eyre. So Heidi, take it away. Differences, uh, overlapments, overlapping be- between the Gothic and, and the Romantic novel. Yeah. Uh, so the Gothic genre actually predates Romantic literature by quite a long time. Uh, Gothic literature... Uh, has been part of the literary tradition since I think it's the early 18th century. Right. Yeah. I mean, fair. Uh, (laughs) uh, Actually, there are quite a few elements of Gothic horror in many Bible stories. (laughs) But the Gothic, like I said, the Gothic novel predates the romantic novel. And in general, it's been genre in the sense that it has mostly been non-literary kind of novels. So we're looking, I mean, early Gothic literature, nobody really reads anymore. It's more of a specialist kind of thing. And there's there are fewer literary Gothic novels um, than you would expect, actually. So, and romantic literature has very some similarities. The romantic novel has some similarities to the Gothic novel. Um, that kind of obsession with nature uh, and using the pathetic fallacy, which we've mentioned as uh, the natural world mirroring the internal world of a character. For example, a character cries and it happens to be raining at the same time, or someone's really mad and there's a lightning storm going on overhead. Uh, that's pretty common in romantic literature as well as gothic literature. Um, so there's some overlaps in the tropes, but they they are two separate genres. But I think that you're, that Katie, you're bringing up a really good point uh, in that you you recognize elements in each one that are similar. Tim, do you want to add anything to that? Uh, it's helpful for me to think about romantic literature as sort of a counterpoint to the Enlightenment in a lot of ways. So if the Enlightenment is all about rationality, about the intellect, about um, the objective scrutiny of nature and making nature our servant, the Romantic Revolution is saying, no, no, you can't. um, There is something about the internal state of a human being and there's something about nature that kind of defies strict categorization. And so there's this move in romantic literature away from the kind of objective scrutinizing temper of science and toward the kind of examination of the self. And like like Heidi said, um, Hmm. both the dark aspects and the light aspects of the self and those dark and light aspects are either mirrored in nature or they are kind of a copy of the kind of dark and light that we see in nature. So the Gothic novel, I think is sort of, I think of it as a subset of the romantic impulse, which is a flight from, you know, like strict capital R rationalism of the enlightenment. It's a flight from the industrialization of the, 
like early 19th century with all the kind of like mechanization of the workday and of the city and like kind of like pulling people away from the farms and nature and putting them in cities. So I, I think the romantic, that romantic literature and Gothic literature as a sort of subset of that are best viewed in, in terms of they're a counterpoint to the rationalism of the Enlightenment, which starts, you know, maybe a generation after Shakespeare does the Enlightenment. Romanticism begins later than that. Right. So, okay, just to clarify something, because Heidi, you said it predates Romanticism, but then Tim said that Gothic literature has like, is like a subset of the Romantic, I don't remember what word you used, you're, you're on mute, but the Romantic ideal mm-hmm. or something like that. So both of those things can be true at the same time. Time-wise, yes. in terms of the genres, the Gothic novel could predate it. And yet, when you think about the romantic ideal, Gothic could be a subset of that in that era. Yeah. Is that what you're... I think, that's, I think that that's true. I think what Tim... I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, do it, and then we'll I, let him respond to you and tell you if you're wrong. That's right. <laughs> uh, but what I hear you saying, the, the Gothic genre novel does indeed predate the romantic genre novel. However... I I think that you're absolutely right in that the romantic ideal encompasses kind of this gothic horror as we as we move forward through history, uh, especially in literary history. That the romantic novel is, as you said, kind of exploring these darker aspects of the self, the connection between the self and the natural world, seeing like the poet as prophet and an acknowledged legislator of the world, as as Shelley said, and. And underneath that becomes then multiple novels during that season that could be can, that that are gothic romance novels, as you saying, kind of a subset of that romantic impulse in history. And many gothic novels that we still read today, not really Rebecca, because by that time romanticism had moved on. But Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights, some of these other gothic romance novels, even Jane Austen's satirical novel Northanger Abbey. Um, I'm trying to pick novels that our, our readers might be more familiar with. Um, these. All, all have these were all written and became great and part of the literary tradition during kind of the ascendancy of the romantic ideal in history because the romantic ideal so encompassed some of these features of the gothic romance novel the book to read i think on this is not specifically about gothic novel but it's about the romantic revolution is called the romantic revolution by tim blanning it's terrific and it's not, it's, it's a very, I'm not going to say it's a light read, but it's not a long book and it's very approachable. And then it kind of goes into why Gothic novels were so obsessed with kind of like the dark and light of nature, et cetera, et cetera. Say the it's, name it's of that again. Read. The book is called The Romantic Revolution and the author's name is Tim Blanning. It's a, it, I've heard that it's available at a very affordable price through Goldberry Books. <laughs> Am I just being a little bit, is it, is it too much? I mean, I'm not going to, I'll let you decide that. How do you, how do you can be the judge of that? <laughs> no, I think it's I, great. I appreciate, I do appreciate the, uh, the onslaught of support that's happening <laughs> every time you do that. Tim, you would recommend a book by a guy named Tim. Tim, Tim Blanning. Is that, is that just like your, you just make a point to pseudonym. recommend. Yeah, your pseudonym. Yeah. yeah. Heidi, for people who want to kind of get into the Gothic novel, I remember from school, the first like English Gothic novel was the Castle of um, 
castle of something, I think is what it was called. Oh, um, I can't remember. From what the 1700s. But what, what would yeah. you say? I mean, you could, the obvious ones are the Poe and uh, Frankenstein and um, Sorrows of Young Werther uh, by it, Goethe. Hold on. 1760s, I think. And I think it's called the, the Castle of. Hold on. I am now looking looking this up. Yes, it is. The Castle of Entranto, um, Horace Walpole in 1764. Other Gothic novelists include Anne Radcliffe, who is, you can still get her novels today. Um, Matthew Lewis was also, he also wrote Gothic horror novels. Um, and what makes Rebecca a little bit different from some of these traditional Gothic horror novels is that most Gothic romances do indeed have a supernatural element. There's somebody haunting somebody. You know, here we have a, a psychological haunting in Rebecca, but we don't have a real ghost. But most, like these early Gothic horror novels really were like real ghosts. Right. And yeah, yeah, yeah. they're pretty, they're like entertaining. They're not necessarily, you know, like the greatest literary. They're more like, you know, you're picking up a genre book and you'll recognize the tropes right away. You've got like mm-hmm. some like brooding hero and some young innocent ingenue and uh, you've got the, the nature, the pathetic fallacy and some kind of haunting and then two lovers that are separated by the haunting and then they come together in the end. Um, probably a fire. A There's probably a fire. Yes, there's usually a fire and some kind of insanity and somebody's illegitimate children and you know all these <laughs> kinds of things. So they're 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 fun. Like, so a lot, like and some of them get really weird, like incestuous themes. Like I wouldn't recommend just going out and picking up some random gothic novel. But it sounds, it sounds like you just spent are pretty fun. You just spent so. three minutes describing Tim's place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> dank basement. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's turn to. I just want to say one more thing. The term gothic is, it can be applied to so many different books. Like I hear Flannery O'Connor describe as a Southern Gothic novelist. I hear, or Southern Gothic fiction writer all the time. And, you know, a lot of her stories are not going to match up one for one with a book like Rebecca, which is kind of like plainly within the gothic tradition so sometimes it's a little bit hard to put like a real strict rules like when is it a stew when is it a soup it's a difference of one or two ingredients and sometimes the difference is really hard to discern even by the most refined palate no that's totally true Tim. there are people who say that frankenstein is a gothic novel for example and some say no it's not gothic it's romantic right um and some say it's both and so again genre placement is it's fluid it's not a science um we're looking for commonalities and tropes and things like that but if you're not a specialist just read a book and enjoy it and also eat cheese and drink wine yeah Eat the cheese, eat the wine. Okay, so read the book. speaking of which, we got an email from somebody that I want to read. This is from Elizabeth Troutman. She wrote three questions. I'm going to read this first one. She says, Hi, I'm a girl who likes the TDH type, tall, dark, and handsome type. And I affirmatively say that Max is a creep. <laughs> Capital C. Driving up that cliff on their first date was the first sign. Demanding that he talk to her employer without her as another. Not wanting her to meet his sister displayed a lack of confidence to me. He didn't come off as the older, mature guy to me. He came off as like... Professor Snape or something. The guy is too weird. Anyway, question is, are we putting semicolons between eat the cheese, drink the wine, and read the book? I'm going to make posters for myself. So you could, the other, the other part of it was just, you know, her taking a little shot at you. The real question is, are we putting semicolons between eat the cheese, drink the wine, and read the book? Or how are we approaching that? I imagined them as complete sentences, but I'm not opposed to semicolons. I, I think that's got to be a, uh, 
uh, a publisher's decision. Yeah, I think we'll have to see how, you know, we'll have to, once Graham starts trying to put That's them a on, a, on a t-shirt or on, you know, on a poster or something, we'll have to figure out, you know, what looks the best. Because ultimately, when you're making in graphic design, punctuation matters only a little bit because you can punctuate using visual clues. So we'll have to see what Graham can come up with. But I feel like a semicolon is always fun, if not busy looking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Complete and it is one continuous us. thought intended to be parallel. So Could be whether commas. or not that's, yeah, some, oh, I don't know. I feel like it. Hear me out on commas. this one. No punctuation at all. It's a poster. Right. That's yeah, the I right choice, I think. Yeah. 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 Eat the cheese, yeah, next line, drink the wine, next question. cheese, read the book. I mean, really we could literally thing. spend the next 20 minutes on this and be perfectly happy, but I don't think our audience would be. No. Tim, I'll just say this. Elizabeth, I want to I read this here because this is directed to you. She says, I'm going to need your address so that I can start the Anna Karenina bribes. This book is one of my top five heart books. My high school English teacher gave it to me as a graduation present, and it was the last book I ever read before going blind. I have now listened to it three times more since that read. Please, please do it. I will pay money. I will make have key lime pies delivered, whatever it takes. So I feel like this would be a good time for us to just remind people, or I don't know if we've officially made an announcement yet, that after the Lord of the Rings, Anna Karenina is the Patreon book. Mm-hmm. I, I want to say something. I want to say a couple of things to Elizabeth. Elizabeth, I really appreciate the offer of bribes. I think that they should have probably been directed toward David because he's <laughs> yeah, kind of come the on. gatekeeper. And I am completely already Elizabeth on your side. Like I need no bribes, nothing at all. Yeah, I, I really do, should have however, played that longer. accept unsolicited bribes. And so I will gladly give you as yeah. gifts. A gift. I, I yes. will do that. By the way, I, I just want to say my, my grandfather went blind when I was seven years old. Yeah, I, I'm familiar with like the kind of travail. He went, you know, blind when he was probably in his 60s. And I have so much sympathy with kind of the kind of change that that brings about in a person's life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I'm so, it, it feels like an honor that you would listen to, to Close Reads. Mm. We're glad yes. you're part of this. Yes. Well, yeah, that, that is going to be the next book after we finish up the Lord of the Rings. So we'll dive deep into a, into a, into another Russian book. And I have to say, I haven't read that book cover to cover in so long. I mean, I pick it up and I read it sometimes because it, it's great. And, but I haven't dedicated, you know, a whole, like a chunk of time to reading it cover to cover. And I can't think of it, you know, anybody I'd rather read it with than, than Tim. Oh, thanks, David. That's I, really nice. I, I also you, Heidi, I'm, I'm it's just like, and yeah. Heidi. <laughs> but Heidi, I just, let's admit it. Like I, I'm the one I who yammers about this. that book. I yammer. I <laughs> go on true. and on and on about that book. You I was going to say, I was going to say Tim and Heidi, and then the little brother factor in me came out and was like, I'm just going to mess with her a little bit. But, I don't mind. It's yeah. fine. He, he, this is one of his favorite yeah. novels. It's a toss up between, it's like one of those, whichever one I'm reading at the time. Am I right? Either Crime and Punishment or Anna Karenina yeah. is my favorite based yeah. on which one I'm reading at the, in that moment. So Since it's I the will one we're heartily, reading next, it's my favorite. I love Anna Karenina too, but I will concede that <laughs> the, the fangirl element to Tim. Tim is definitely so. the biggest fangirl on the show. Yeah, no doubt. So um, this episode is going to be as long as Anna Karenina, we don't get right? to it. So let's talk about Jill's question. Jill, Jill says, um, do you think that Plamanda and Maxim have been to get, if anybody actually names their child Plamanda, 
in it's real life. The greatest triumph we, of Lucy White's life. Yeah, I know. <laughs> for real. The greatest triumph of Lucy White's life. And we will send them a signed close read poster <laughs> or something. I don't know. We'll send you a reward for doing that terrible thing to your person, to your child. Okay. So, um, could Plamanda and Maxim have been happy together had they not returned to Mandalay? Could she have ever grown up? You know, Heidi talked about how this is a coming of age novel in a lot of ways. Could she have ever grown up without going through all of that mess? And would he have been happy? And I do think it's interesting how much he says, you know, he says, I made a big mistake coming back. And so he, he raises that question of whether they did the right thing by coming back. Heidi, what do you think about this? I think no. I think they had to come back and endure this uh, shared suffering together and separately in in their own selves um, in order to uh, be happy and make their love real. Tim? Is the question, if they had not... Can you read the question again? Could Plamanda and Maxim have been happy together had they not returned to Mandalay. So after they got married, I believe. Like, mm-hmm. If they had stayed abroad. Yeah. If they had started I, their life together abroad. I don't think that Maxim could. Agreed. I, you know, a lot of that depends on how um, acute you think the human conscience affects someone post-murder. My hunch is that it's pretty affecting. <laughs> it's, it's my hunch. Now, I mean, we that, did read Crime and Punishment. Yeah, right. That I mean, that really is like really influential. It's about a man who like wants to be a soup, you know, kind of this ubermensch who can overcome the the steady gnawing of conscience because he's a great man like Napoleon. Um, but as for Plamanda, I think that she could have grown up in, you know, other ways. She might not have had like the pressure to grow up so quickly that she faces in the circumstances of the novel. But yeah, I think she could have, she would have grown up in a different way because she's dealing with this man who has this gnawing conscience, you know, that's probably Mm. herniating morally in a variety of different ways. That would be a real, like that'd be a real trick to deal with. I think you should write a play called The Herniated Conscience. Oh man. Great. Man, your turn of phrase, Tim. It's just on point almost all the time. Thanks. Well, I don't know about that. Thank you. Some of the time. (laughs) So let's talk about this next question. Ilya has a question that since we're talking about Mandalay, she said she'd love to hear more discussion about Mandalay as a character. She mentioned that we did talk about it a bit at the beginning. And she says, I feel like this is part of the Gothic supernatural aspect with the house feeling almost alive. How do you see the idea of the house as a character playing out? Does it have a character arc or develop in any way besides obviously dying in the end? Heidi, do you want to touch on this one first? Do you have any thoughts on that? Man, I love this question. I, I think this is a great question. I do think that the house... I don't know if it has a character arc, but it functions as a character in a couple of ways. One, it is until it is lost, it is the great love of Maxim's life. And I, I think that there's multiple reasons why Maxim faces the loss of Manderley at the end in terms of the structure of the novel and the character arc for Maxim. Uh, and one of them is he is justice. Like he, this is his, this is the justice that he reaps. He, if you reap what you sow, uh, this justice is, uh, is his punishment for the murder. Um, and then I also think that it is only through the loss of Manderley that he can actually love a human. Um, and I, I think that now he is forced 
to look at his wife, not as just the opposite of Rebecca, not just like not who Rebecca is, but as herself. Um, and I think that's why she remains nameless through the book is because it is only after the loss of Manderley that Maxim can actually truly love her. So I think that in that way, she, meaning the house, kind of functions, takes the role, and this is that Jane does in Jane Eyre, um, of this kind of dividing line of the virtue of the man in the story. It's not Plamanda. She accepts him and loves him as he is, flawed and all. But there has to be some kind of accountability. And Danvers is either malevolent slash pathetic. Um, and so she's not going to provide it. So the house does. And I, so I, I think that the house plays the role of a character in the sense that it is the dividing line of Maxim's virtue uh, throughout the book and also the great love of his life until it's lost. I struggle with the same question, Heidi, about whether or not that the manor has a plot arc. Because in some ways, I mean, it certainly does in that it's burned to the ground by the end of the book. Um, but other than that, it seems like it's relatively, if it's a character, it's relatively static, you know? Yeah, I agree. Like, th- there are moments that we see, what, what, are, what are the flowers that are growing so wildly when we first show up at um, Mandalay? And then they, they're they kind of like drooping by the end. But, you know, so there's, there's some movement, but for the most part, it seems like the, the estate is a static representation of Rebecca's effect upon Maxim or maybe kind of an incarnation mm. of Rebecca. But mm. yeah, I, I kind of agree with you that it sounds like you think, no, it's not really much of a plot arc. It doesn't have much. Of I a agree. Plot arc. Yeah. I agree with that completely. So, and also houses, all right, one more thing, David, is that houses so in- and stories are often metaphors for the soul, right? So this, this, I, and I think that works incredibly well for Manderley, right? And and in that case, it would be, I think, yet another double for Maxim himself. This kind of haunted room that that Rebecca holds, um, that has this like creepy presence, and Danvers is drawn to it, but um, and and our narrator is like repelled by this like internal room that that keeps Rebecca's memory alive and in stasis like even the room itself Danvers keeps it completely pristine and even you know this the smell of her nightgown and the hair and the hairbrush all of that that I think represents the haunted nature of Rebecca to Maxim um, and to every other character in the story but I, I think it's yet another double for him so there was another interesting question about the house. Kristen said, why do you think Maxim leaves the house untouched since Rebecca's death? He, she mentions how he left her room and her clothes, her papers in the desk, her hairbrushes. Uh, she even keeps Mrs. Danvers on. The book in his car is the one with, that has her inscription in it. And Kristen says, in the framework of the novel, it helps us to make us see him as first as a deeply grieving widower, but knowing what we know in the end, why wouldn't he have gotten rid of these reminders of her and cleanse his house of her evil? Was he afraid to change anything and have it possibly reflect badly on him? Was he so traumatized by Rebecca's psychological abuse that he couldn't dig himself out? So he leaves the house exactly the way it was. What do you guys think? Tim, what do you think about this? Why do you think he does that given how much we, we, we know he hates her? Why doesn't he go for a fresh start? I wonder if he's scared. You know, like you're going you're gonna to go in and start tinkering with her things. Is this going to kind of poke the bear in some way. I mean, you know, he's, he's expresses on multiple occasions um, that Rebecca kind of wasn't done with him. Doesn't he, he expresses that in some way, like, you know, 
She's not really gone. Mrs. Danvers on the lookout. Mrs. Danvers guarding her, guarding Rebecca's things as if it was a museum. If I'm Maxim, I'm a little bit afraid. I don't want to mess with her. The less I touch her hairbrush, the less, you know, inclined she's going to rise up from the dead and torture me. That's fair. That's fair. She'll haunt you till you, till you die. Do we have any evidence in the story that Maxim knew about the room? That, that well, what about the room, Heidi? That it was untouched? does he know that? Yeah, does he know that that it is a shrine that Danvers has kept? Because what we know is that he, I, I think we don't, unless a, somebody mm-hmm. can correct me here. I don't think he even knows about it. I think that Danvers has kept it pristine, and that he has avoided that wing like the plague. Like he, he had, and there's a lot of attention paid to that in the novel. That he's moved his room over here by the rose garden, not overlooking the sea, because he doesn't want to even be reminded of her at all. So. I don't think he knows about the room unless a reader or one of you guys can correct me about that. If he does, it's the weakest link in the novel. And actually I think the weakest link in the novel is the fact that he keeps Danvers. And, and so as I've been thinking through this question um, and he must, there must be a room in the house. This is one of those questions I think that's not completely answered by the psychology of the character, but is answered by the structural need of the novel, right? In order to have this novel, you must have a shrine to Rebecca in the house. And in order to have this novel, you must have Danvers still as the housekeeper. But I think psychologically, it doesn't, it doesn't. You just suspect your disbelief that he would. You do, that he would keep her. He knows how loyal that Danvers was to Rebecca. And I think he would have, and he's also a very assertive person. He's not a shrinking violet like his new wife. And so I think he would have fired her. And so I think that the fact that Danvers is still working in the house is the weak point of the novel that is not fully explained by the psychology of Maxim. How do you explain it to yourself, Heidi? I don't. I think it's a weak link, but I I think that I think it it doesn't work um, for the reasons that I just said. His claim is that he doesn't want Danvers to betray him for the sake of Manderley. She tries to address it in the novel when he says, I kept Danvers because I didn't want her. I knew that how loyal she was to Rebecca. I wanted to keep her happy and to placate her and not have her go out and talk badly about me in the house in the neighborhood in case she knew something about our, the, our sham of a marriage. I don't think that that actually works that well as an explanation. I think it's pretty thin, but in order for the novel to work, you have to have Danvers. There's no novel without Danvers. And so you like, she, she did the best she could, but I don't think she explained it well enough. I imagine some conversation between Maxim and Danvers after Rebecca's death going something like Danvers, we're going to have to let you go. You know, I'm really sorry, but you know, water on the bridge, stiff upper lip, et cetera, et cetera. And Danvers kind of coming back and saying, Rebecca would be most disappointed to hear this, Mr. DeWinter. Are you sure that you are going to stick with this decision? And I, I mean, I, I can imagine, this is not, these are not the droids that you <laughs> I can co- totally imagine Maxim losing his nerve and being like, you know what? Yeah, let me rethink this. Maybe we should keep you on. You know, I could same thing. Like, I'm not going to poke the bear, even though the bear is supposedly dead in the bottom of the ocean, uh, I, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to mess with her. I'll keep, I'll keep Danvers. She's actually, you know, she's a pretty good housekeeper. She's good on the menu. Yeah. I mean, there also might be the sense that he doesn't want to draw attention to things too much. Like, maybe, yeah, maybe not. He doesn't need people in the village looking into it. But Heidi, I think you're right. I think it's, you, you have to have Danvers and 
why she would still be around. It's a weak, it's a weak link. Yeah. But it's one that you have to have the shrine. I'm happy. Exactly. I'm happy to suspend some disbelief on there. Remembering this is not an actual real life historical story. So this is a made up story. So you have to, sometimes there's flaws, even in, even in really good Mm -hmm. books. And I think that's one of them, but you, you also, to go back to the question, you have to have a shrine to Rebecca within the house um, that, that is, you know, creepy and represents kind of the haunted presence of Rebecca. So, yeah. Uh, Cindy asks a question. She says, in rereading the first two chapters after finishing the book, it seems to me that Maurier is going to great lengths to show us that the narrator, Plamanda, ends up exactly where she started. Living in a hotel, not a home. Living a boring, everyday, the same life. No evidence of friends her own age. Uh, and basically acting as a companion to someone a generation older than she is. She reads aloud to him, she says with exclamation point. Is there, is there anything uh, more paid companion than that? It actually, that reminds me of Little Women. Is there anything more? Okay, the we're so happy bits in these chapters have a very the lady doth protest too much vibe. Do you think the narrator is punished for standing by Maxim by getting exactly what she wanted, but actually getting nowhere? Tim, I want you to answer this one first. I don't think that there's a that um, Daphne Du Maurier has a sort of she wants to teach our narrator something. I don't think, I don't get that impression from Hmm. the book. I'm so I'm reluctant to say, yeah, she's being punished for sticking with her husband in some way. I I just don't see it in some ways. It's kind of like the, um, what's the term, the damage done collateral damage collateral damage of what Maxim did to Rebecca and what Rebecca did to Maxim, the collateral damage is in the kind of psyche and life story of Plamanda. She's just, you know, she, she stuck around for Maxim. She feels she's in love with him. She also probably feels some measure of duty as his wife to stick around. Um, But no, I'm reluctant to say that she's being punished in some way. What do you think, Heidi? Yeah, I I agree. I don't think that there's a moral to the story. I don't think we're closing the story with like now everybody learned their lesson and became virtuous humans. Like we we've got like a gothic hero and a woman who stood. Is that how you read the question? Murder. No. Yes, but I I do think that there's a sense of justice here. And here's so let me transition here. I don't think there's a moral. However, I do think we have a chiasm in a literary structure. I think that the point that she's bringing up is great that we have at the end a very similar situation to what we have at the beginning. And I think that there's several chiastic elements to the story, meaning kind of full circle elements. I'm not going to go much deeper into the definition of chiasm. We've covered it a couple of times on the show. And, and when I'm saying chiasm, I mean kind of like this kind of full circle moment um, that how it, as it begins, so it ends in some way. And I, I had not noticed that. And this particular question drew my attention to it. She's exactly like a paid companion here. Um, and uh, so I think that that is intentional, but I don't think it's intended to cast some kind of judgment on her actions in the story. I, well, I think one of the things about our show that we really pride ourselves on is that we try to let books make their own rules. So when Heidi last week was advocating for, like, let's read it like a gothic novel, that's what it is. Like, let's give ourselves over to it. 
what we're advocating for is that we kind of walk into this space in which we let the book kind of in some ways kind of overwhelm us in a way. Um, that is not to say that somehow we step into sort of like like this amoral zone in which we don't think that we think like, you know, hey, in certain situations, murder's okay. It's, no, it's all right. It, that's not in any way what we're advocating on the show, but what we are advocating for is to be a good reader you have to kind of give yourself over to the author and trust the author as your guide. And when you step back from a book, maybe, you know, a week after you finish reading the book, you, you, your, your moral compass is going to be affecting um, your overall assessment of the book. But this is the kind of book, I think, that does not set itself up to be a fable for our edification. It's not a book of moral instruction. Maybe it's a book of moral instruction, like when you do terrible things, these are the sorts of things that happen to you. Yeah, sure. But I'm I'm a little bit reluctant to put that kind of paste on the book because I don't think those are the rules that it's trying to set up for us. It's interesting that you both went that direction because that's not how I read the question. Like, Cindy Weiser asks, do you think the narrator is punished? She puts the word punished in quotation marks. And I didn't think of it like she was making bad decisions and so De Maurier was trying to punish her or there's supposed to be some kind of lesson that if you stick around with, with like husbands who do bad things, you're going to get punished. How did you read it, David? I read it, I guess I read it in a little more of an abstract or a little less of a direct way. I, like, did she end up in a less desirable position than she thought she was going to be in? Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's two ways to take this particular question about the novel. To your point, David, you can take it as like an ending is making some kind of moral statement or that the ending is just the ending of the story. Right. And so structurally, I think it's really brilliant that she ends up in almost exactly the same spot that she was in at the beginning of her of her love story with Maxim. I think that's amazing. Like I I hadn't even noticed that, and I loved it. Um, yeah, yeah. Th- that this reader pointed it out. But no, I don't think she's being punished. I think Maxim is experiencing justice, and the narrator is along for the ride because of her great love for this man. Le- Okay, let's we just be, for just for the sake of time, let's move on. Mm. There was a number of questions about why they're basically living abroad at the end, or at the beginning, and then at the end, um, at the beginning, which follows the end. They point out, okay, Manderley was destroyed, but then there was a couple of people who pointed out, well, there was so much public goodwill for Manderley. It was part of the traditions. It was the fabric of the society. Everybody loved it. He obviously had some money tucked away in the bank and so forth. So why did they not just rebuild it? James offered a couple of different scenarios. So I want to see, we'll start with these three and then you can add any to it. Is it just because Mandalay was destroyed? He says, I disagree with this because they could just rebuild it. Two, is it because Danvers and Flavelle are still out there with the first being psychotic and the second basically threatening to hound Max all his days, which is an interesting point that Flavelle, Flavelle, right? Flavelle, he did threaten to haunt them. And then third, they exile themselves because uh, both rumor and the magistrate think Max murdered Rebecca despite the coroner verdict. So is one of those three reasons why you think they left? Or is there another one that you would add to that? Tim, what do you think? I don't think there's any possible way they can rebuild Manderley. Like, oh, now it's okay. Now it's safe to kind of like rebuild and move back in. We've only had a death off the coast of my wife. Oh yeah, I committed it. 
And oh yeah, the housekeeper appears to have burned it to the ground. Yeah. All of no the one's going to ask questions. I rec- th- that's the other thing. Everyone is going to ask questions. Like, how did the fire start? Oh, Maxim was smoking in bed and it just got out of hand a little bit. (laughs) No way. I mean, maybe, but that just seems totally implausible. And so you're going to have these rumors around town for the rest of your life. I I just think there are too many questions and too many either bad memories or just like, or it's just the place is haunted by this point. It's just haunted. You got to get out. So where are you going to go? London? I mean, maybe. I, for me, the, the, they're living in exile is what it feels like. And it's a self-imposed exile. And I think that is the most, that is the right conclusion for this book, for them to be living in exile after what Maxim has done, about after what Rebecca has done. They don't have a home. That seems right to me. It's in a way, it's Plamandus. She has to attempt to make a home, mm. uh, and you know she'd been at Mandalay. They, you know, they'd be, what are they going to rebuild on the ashes of Rebecca's influence? That that would be very complicated uh, interpersonally for them, as well as thematically in the book. Heidi, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't have anything to add. I think that that's exactly right, and I think that the there's in genre fiction, there's not always the cause and effect. Like I have, I had those same questions, which I know we're going to read this novel at the end of all the pretty horses. I was kind of like, why, why did he do that? But then of course he had to do that. That's the only way the book can end. Right. Like, (laughs) and you know, a great, a great genre novelist, like Daphne, like Daphne du Maurier or others will embed kind of these cause and effect things within the story that lead us to the end. And I think what we have here is he lost the house to your point, him he lost the house and he he actually doesn't have an income like this is if you're if you're a landowner your income comes from the land and so he has to he now has to live much more modestly than he did before and he can't live anywhere else we already know how much he loves this this place and what this how much this means to him and that there's been generations upon generations of de winters that have lived there and so it's not like you just can go it's not like america when you just like move to a new neighborhood and build a new house let's go to, let's go to tempe arizona it's warm there in yeah. the winter like there is no other place for him to go he can't afford another country house he can't rebuild manderley and all the country houses are taken by all the other nobles that have lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years right and so this is a different time in history as well and he just wants to get away we already know he has a tendency to run when things are stressful he, he that's how he found our narrator so there are some i think embedded clues that make this a, a, a decision that makes sense i don't think it's a weak link but I also think, as you said, exile is the right and proper plot ending to this story. Okay, this next one is a yes or no question. Haley asks, can you discuss the scene when Plamanda finally stands up to Mrs. Danvers? Yes. When she said, I am Mrs. DeWinter now, I wanted to jump up and high five someone. Did you think it was significant in that moment that the nameless narrator claimed the name of Mrs. DeWinter for herself? Is that significant? Yes or no? Yes. All right, great. That's everything. Moving on. Um, Really moving on. (laughs) I I mean, go feel- It's everything. This is what it's been working towards, not getting Maxim off the hook. This is the high point of the novel. The point is not get Maxim off the hook. The point of the novel is I am Mrs. DeWinter. This is the victory of the whole novel. 
So there was this question that I have to find. The question was something about does, who wins? Does anybody actually win? Does and Rebecca you, win? Yeah, yeah, does Rebecca win? Yeah. So in the end, you said that the great victory of the novel is Plamanda saying, I am Mrs. DeWinter and getting rid of her name, Plamanda. But then the question is, does Rebecca win here? So does that mean that Rebecca does not win because the victory in the novel comes from her finally saying, you are no longer Mrs. DeWinter, I am Mrs. DeWinter? Is that just all we need to say that Rebecca has been defeated? Or does the previous conversation we just had in which they can no longer be in their home mean that Rebecca actually won? This is why it's a good novel and not lame. Or does does Frank win? (laughs) Frank does not win. Yeah, see, part of me thinks that Rebecca does, that two things happen, that Rebecca wins. Like, Mandalay's burned to the ground. The only thing that she doesn't get is, like, maybe she wanted Maxim to go to prison. Maybe. I don't know. But she ultimately gets what she wants. But I think also, Heidi's right, that this is a coming-of-age story, and our no-name narrator taking a name, accepting a name, fighting for the name and like inhabiting that name throughout the remainder of the story is the fulfillment of that part of the tale. So I wonder if you can have two things happening at once. Rebecca wins, our unnamed narrator takes her name and she wins. But she but but in winning, it's not that she defeats Rebecca, she just matures. She kind of like steps into herself. Is that a, do you, what do you think about that, Heidi? I agree, and yeah. I think that this 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 exact question is why this is a novel that transcends its genre, like because it's if you're just sit around in a book club, which I'm sure many of our listeners are even doing, you're going to have five different answers from five different people in the book club, and I think that's what makes a novel great, and that's why I keep saying Team Maxim because with our modern sensibilities, yes, he's kind of a chauvinist blah, blah, blah. She needs to step up. And oh, really, the name you're going to inhabit is a Mrs. name, right? Like, so you're actually not even claiming an identity of your own. You're just inhabiting the ex-wife's identity, right? So, but, and that's, that's, those are fine interpretations, right? But I, I think you're avoiding the complexity of the novel if you do that, because the complexity of the novel is, is it enough for this woman to say, I am Mrs. DeWinter and to triumph over her actual physical flesh and blood adversary and a claim of authority and identity. And that adversary is Mrs. Danvers. That's a great point. That's a great point. I didn't even think about that. So this is her moment of triumph when she actually stands up and, and owns her role as Maxim's wife, as the mistress of Manderley, and as the uh, stronger character in this battle of the wills between her and Danvers, which Danvers has won every single time, game, set, match, until this moment. And so I think it's really important that we acknowledge it for what it is, and that we acknowledge that it is within the world of the story, it is a love for a man that sets this woman free. Now, that then creates another whole set of complex conversations, I think, within the story. Um, then you say, well, is that okay? Like, is it okay that her entire identity is now Mrs. DeWinter? Like, why not I am, and then tell us her name and give her, well, I am Plamanda DeWinter, right? That might have been an even better moment. And the fact that they lose Manderly then adds another layer of complexity to is that moment enough? But don't miss the moment either way. However you interpret it, don't miss the moment. This is her ownership of herself here, and it matters, and don't dismiss it. Okay. 
we're talking about how this novel um, reaches these heights. And there was a question that I'm trying to find. There's so many questions. I'm scrolling back and forth through them. Hannah, here it is. Hannah says, what other sorts of genre novels reach the heights that Rebecca does? Have any been published recently? I think lots of the psychological thrillers that are so prevalent and popular right now give me so many Rebecca vibes, but none are quite as good. So genre novels that, that reach the height. The Lord of the Rings, maybe, would be one. Mm-hmm. There's, a, I think there's some historical fiction out there. I think that there's a couple of Westerns that I think the book we're going to do after Jane Eyre, All the Pretty Horses, gets pretty close. I think Tim and I would agree on that. Tim, do you, can you think of anything? I'm thinking. Lonesome Dove, like you guys have said, although I haven't read it yet. Dune is a book I think that transcends yeah. the genre. Yeah. If I, man, I wish I had more time to think about that because I'll go to bed tonight and I'll like sit up and I'll think, oh, wait, I should have said this. This is the, you know, this is a book that transcends genre. But right now I'm struggling. Ender's Game, I think, transcends genre. I think that, let's see. The Daughter of Time, Josephine Tay novel. Does, I've never I mean, read pers- that. Personally, I think that, um, and then there were none. The Agatha Christie novels transcends yes. the basic right. genre. Dorothy Sayers. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say something like Beloved, but I have such a hard time figuring out like what, what genre, genre are we dealing with? I mean, is it historical like, fiction? In some ways it is. Mm-hmm. In some ways it's plainly Hillary not. Mantel then. Wolf Hall, Bring Up the Bodies, mm-hmm. Mirror in the Light. Those books transcend the so historical fiction not our, genre. Are books like 1984, Slaughterhouse-Five, Brave New World, are those genre? I wouldn't have called them that, but I could because probably be easily convinced. I think what happens is almost all books fall into some sort of genre, except the vague notion of literary fiction. Until they become classics, and then you stop thinking about them as the genre anymore. Yeah, like after like a few decades, like Faulkner. I mean, is is Faulkner genre fiction? I mean, that. I mean, it's tough to say. I mean, there are books that are obvious. Like if something's fantasy, it's obviously a fantasy genre. If something's western, it's obviously a western genre. Um, I guess murder mystery is a genre. I mean, but then yeah, the Brave New World type sci-fi dystopian stuff is yeah. By the way, that book definitely does not transcend genre. That book, I'm going to say it as clearly as I can say it. Brave New World? That book is terrible. It is a great conceit for a book, but that is the worst. It's just... In almost an insufferably bad book. I'm so but glad. Now I need to idea. do it. I'm so glad. Part of, me, part of me wants to, because by contrast, 1984 is just so good. It's just so good. As far as dystopias go, that game is over. 1984 is a 10 times superior book. But Brave New World might actually be more prescient in what it kind of foretells. And for that, it deserves credit. But as far as so, a piece of literature, it, like what Edgar Allan Poe is to poetry, Brave New World is to dystopias. It's so bad, so bad. There's a lot to unpack in that. Okay, I'm going to give you four novels right now. You have to rank them. Okay. Brave New World, Slaughterhouse-Five, 1984, Fahrenheit 451. Oh, man. Oh, rank my those gosh. novels. I mean, we know that you think Brave New World's at the bottom, right? And... I'm sorry. I'm just going to make all sorts of enemies here. Fahrenheit 451 is also not a good book. A brilliant idea. Not a good book. So, so worse or better than Brave New World? Uh, it's still better than Brave New World. <laughs> okay. So Brave New World, then Fahrenheit, then Slaughterhouse. Then Slaughterhouse 5 and then, yeah. Okay. All right. 
We'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Let the people come after you. My Instagram handle is Tim A. McIntosh. <laughs> Get my DMs about, be, about that. Yeah. Brandon wants to know who would play Sydney Bristow in the gothic reboot of Alias. Heidi, any thoughts on this? I have no thoughts on this. This Tim, is a David Curry question. I have no thoughts on this either. She can't be replaced. She cannot <laughs> be replaced. <laughs> <laughs> How old is Sydney Bristow supposed to be in that show? That's that was the thing that was tricking tripping me up. The right age, whatever it is. I heard this comedian one time say, "If you're ever unsure about a, great Tim, thanks. am I going to do this? I'm going to do this on the air. If you're ever unsure about a woman's age, just say 28 because if she's younger, she aspires to be 28. If she's older, she'll take it as a compliment. So maybe she was 28. That's a great point. I like it. If it's true, Heidi. I think speaking as someone who's a great like, age, I think 32 is a perfect age yourself. for a woman, but yeah, thank you. There you go. Now it's time for David to undermine your kindness. <laughs> I'm not <gonna> say <laughs> um, um, that'd be fun casting though. Do you not Elizabeth have an Moss, idea? David? Elizabeth Moss would be good. She okay. plays Peggy and Mad Men. Margot Robbie, depending on what approach you want to take. Okay. Uh, did David ever come up with a better name for Plamanda? Because I don't think it can be topped. Um, Mrs. DeWinter. Um, nice. That was perfect. Mm -hmm. Just leave it there. Brianna asks, in the first chapters of the book, Plamanda burns the page with an inscription from Rebecca. At the end, Manderley burns. So this is obviously a book she points out with has, which has a lot of mirroring throughout. So is this just a matter of form? Is it foreshadowing? Um, or is there something else that you think Demoria is trying to do by having this page be burned at the beginning and then the book be burned at the end? Is there something else besides just foreshadowing and uh, mirroring going on there? Yeah, I think that that I, I really liked this comment slash question. I thought it was great. Um, I, I do think that there's more there. I think that burning is, as David has pointed out a couple of times with uh, facetiously, but he's actually right. Burning is a pretty big feature in Gothic stories um, and romantic stories. Yeah, I was only being facetious in tone. Yeah, I know. Uh, but yeah, there's there's always some kind of fire because fire is both purifying and destructive and beautiful. And all of those things are very gothic and very romantic, capital R romantic. Uh, and the idea of uh, obliterating something beyond repair and that destructive act is also an act of purification. Um, and we have that, I think, with the burning like the small burning and the big burning. And so I think it's like a very symbolic kind of thing in this kind of literature. Why did, so what I was confused about though is the time it took. What I was confused about is the time it took. Like, does Go she, on. I, I'm not saying, I'm not, I don't know the answer to this. Does she, does she wait years later to burn the page that she found like the first time she ever rode in the car with him? Or am I I'm confused? When did, did so this question I think I was confused about the question, but now I can't find the question again because I want to find something else. David, okay, I, thought first... you were the, I thought you were the technology impresario that we were all relying <laughs> upon. And like, well, it just means it's, it, true, it's, it's, it? it's like a very low What's bar. Impresario. I don't even know what that someone word means. Of like, someone of great abilities. Tim, you wow, muted yourself job, by Tim. like moving earlier. So the. The, I am, what I'm asserting is 
I'm looking up to you. I have things that I need to learn from you. That's what I've always understood this like technological relationship to be. But now I'm questioning. I mean, I feel really no need to defend myself right now. But the problem isn't the technology. The problem is that I scrolled away. I'm sorry. That's a distinction. That's like a metaphysical distinction, (laughs) a a medieval distinction that is so a difference without a distinction. Yeah, right. So okay. Plamanda burns the page with an inscription from Rebecca in the first chapters of the book. So she's doing that in the future, right? Yes. So yes. how far into the future is she doing that? Like, I think it's after the fire. Right after the fire or like way after the mm, fire? Like in the time. It's like how, how <laughs> much later is she telling the story? That's hidden. We from, don't know. Yeah, we don't we know. We don't know. But we know that they're, they're obviously elderly. On, on so it would have been later. So like, she waits maybe, many moons to burn the page. I think so. So why does she wait many I moons to burn the page? I should have looked this up. I think it says because that Maxim is you know our listeners are security. yelling at us yeah, right. as they're folding their right. laundry. Maxim is like, collecting social security. Yep. I realized the UK does not have a social security system. It was a little. It's it was an, an anachronism. An, if it's not, a, is it an anachronism? But well, if it's, got an, their it's version misplaced of it. geo, geographically, it's an a geographicalism. Anachronism, anagio. Help I just want to sit here for a minute and let you try to figure to out what the word waters, is. Please. Anne wants to know if you think Demaria intentionally wrote Maxim de Winter as a character who would be polarizing. No, she did not. And this is why, this is my entire point. <laughs> she wrote Maxim to be a sexy leading man. This is how she wrote him intentionally. <laughs> I'm serious. I am oh, serious. I totally believe. It. I totally. I know you're serious, Heidi. I love it. Like, it's I like think she. You're I think the murder. The mic. Of, I think the murder of Rebecca is intended to be somewhat, like a little bit polarizing. What, what? But I'm serious. I'm. I'm serious. Like the same way that like, well, we know in, that. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm not trying to defend my point. When I say I'm serious, I mean, I'm not trying to defend my point anymore. I am unequivocally stating that in Gothic literature, this is our hero and he's not supposed to be controversial to our readers. It is assumed the same way that they cast Brad Pitt in the 90s and the early 2000s because they knew women would come watch the movie. That's why they wrote this kind of character in a gothic romance. I don't feel capable of answering this question because I don't know that I'm the audience for for Maxim de Winter. Exactly. And most modern people aren't. Tim, what do you think? Even modern women aren't. Modern... Even modern women aren't our target audience anymore. But 1930s, early in the in the 19th century, like when when they were writing this, it was just assumed that this was going to be a sexy, attractive man to women, and it, his actions were going to be fully explained by the fact that his wife was a psychopath. The controversial part of the story is that Maxim faces any consequences at all. Tim, go ahead. To your point. The man that they cast in the Alfred Hitchcock, what, 1937, is uh, Laurence Olivier, hottie. I mean, like yes. the first time that you see him in the lobby of the hotel where he meets Plamanda, I'm like, golly, I didn't know that Laurence Olivier was such a good looking guy. First Hollywood movie. That was his first Hollywood movie? I believe so. 
He's killing it. That suit, he's killing it. Now, I know we're going to do a movie episode at some point. We're going to talk about this one, the Netflix one. I watched both. I so much prefer Army Hammer to Lawrence Olivier. So much. And we'll talk about why later. He was a a good Maxim. Part of it is I'm a huge Army Hammer fan, but personal life life notwithstanding, I do feel like I should say that. Do not Google his... His controversy. Really kind of a mess, isn't yes. it? Yeah. yeah. I'm just going to say, I'm talking about as a performer. Um, mm-hmm. I He's in the new Agatha Christie, here. Death on the Nile. He, he plays Simon. He is. Anyway, um, go ahead. His performance in The Social Network as two brothers is one of my favorite performances yeah, great. of the last 20 years. He's great. So that's part of it. But we'll, when we get to the movies, we'll talk about why I actually think his version works. Part of it is the is the eras that they come from. So I, I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm perfectly willing to admit that. Um Tim, do you want to? You don't want to argue with Heidi about the, him being polarizing, right? Do you feel like that would be a wise decision or an unwise decision right now? You can. Say would you like you to want. become polarizing, or would you? I'm <laughs> As if I haven't been enough to be, though, not my own sensibilities. <laughs> I, I think we could have another conversation about whether or not a 21st century reader should find him polarizing. I think Heidi's point is exactly right. He was written well, in like whatever the year that he was written in to be. A swashbuckling dark to be a kind of an archetype. Hero. Yeah, mm-hmm. but here's yeah. the question, though, Heidi. Here's where, if I was going to have an argument with you about this, I, which I don't really want to, but if I was going to, then what I would say is, not that it's outside of the genre, or that I'm misreading the genre, but that she's creating a character that is meant to subvert the genre. Like that's that's the counter to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is I that think that she's that's subverting. True. She's not. Yeah, like, but the subversion within the. I, I think she would be shocked. Like if she was to like rise from her grave and read. Like Rebecca? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, read or hear some of the comments about him being abusive or gaslighting or whatever. Like she would be like, what? Mm-hmm. Like that's, no, that's not what I meant. Like, so kind of this like moody leading man is the, the sexy archetype of the, of, of the Gothic novel. And so to her, like she would probably say the thing that I did that was controversial was punish him for what he did. That's crazy that you guys think he should have had more. To be fair, before World War II, people were much more okay with just killing people. It was just a much more accepted thing, just generally speaking. Yeah, or locking people in attics or all that, you know, like this is our our modern sensibilities are not attuned to some of these tropes as being attractive. And I think that's been my argument throughout. I actually do find this trope attractive, but that's not my argument. My argument mm-hmm. isn't, I think he's sexy. My argument is Gothic literature forgives us this leading man and we have to read it this way mm-hmm. in order to understand it. And then you can be like, well, I don't like it. Mm. I don't think it works, right? But you have to accept it on its terms. Mm-hmm. Yes. That is a big point of close reads. Yes. That doesn't mean that you have to be someone who loves those terms or loves the kind of book Absolutely. that has yeah. those terms. Uh, right. Exactly. It doesn't have to be mm-hmm. your heart book. Right. But you have to read it according to, we would encourage you to read mm-hmm. it. We would read it. <laughs> We don't really, you can do whatever you want. You're adults, most of you. Um, okay, so what do you think? We got time for a couple more? Tim's got time for one more. Well, now the pressure's on me. Oh, dear. 
Um, we're going to use all the time that we have for me finding the question so that we don't mm-hmm. have time to answer it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Aaron asks, how culpable is the public in this novel? Which ties into a question that, Tim, you actually commented on and said, hey, good question. Maybe we can talk about this. So let's, let me see if I can find the original question. Is this um, an example of was, the so, boys club? Yes. Yeah, so somebody said, was Maxim acquitted thanks to the boys club? You said, you love this question. And then Aaron asked, you know, how culpable was the public? And she mentions Miss Van Hopper's tactless gossip and maneuvering in the beginning. The Mandalay neighbors comparing the narrator to Rebecca out loud to her face. Everyone's just so creepy and voyeuristic. They push Maxim and the narrator into having a dance and seem to use them for their own entertainment. We've certainly seen how this kind of fascination with celebrity causes problems in real life. And Maxim and Rebecca's relationship was a sham put on just for the public that led to death and destruction. So do you think the snooping public could be considered an antagonist in this book? And then that take, so we'll tie that into the question of whether Maxim got off because of the uh, old boys club. So what role do the public in general outside of our four main characters, well, our three main characters and our ghost, what role do they play in terms of the action of this, this book? Do you think Tim, you said it was a good question. So see, I think that, Okay, let, let's go back 100 years. I think that this is an aristocracy that we're talking about. Uh, Maxim is part of the aristocracy. And I think it's like important to remember, um, in aristocratic societies, the lower classes and the middle classes aspire to be like the upper classes. And I think in an American society, we, which is much more democratic, it's much more level. I know it's not level completely. I'm completely aware of that. But um, there is a sense that we we pride ourselves in being much more democratic than aristocratic. And in a democratic yeah, society- Yeah, I know. What a shame, huh? We look at our neighbors for like signals of the way that we ought to behave. In an aristocratic society, we look to the upper classes for signals about where we should behave. So I read the kind of populace in this novel- as wanting to look the other way away from the possibility that Maxim did harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that the detective and the judge and the jury also thinks he's one of us. He couldn't have done such a terrible thing. And so I don't think they press very hard on trying to, in in trying to uncover facts that might implicate Maxim. Yeah. So I do think it's an old boys club, but I also think it's important to remember the lower classes are, for the most part, they're kind of, they're going along with it also. There's not like mm-hmm. this like like harsh antagonism from the upper, the, the, the lower classes, like, oh, the, the oppressors that are, you know, like tyrannical over, sure, sure. You know, you'd hear that kind of talk in a pub, but I think for the most part, there's, an understanding or there's a belief that the upper classes have their money and they have their education and they're just a different kind of higher quality person than I am. I think that's a, again, I'm, I'm speaking in really general terms, but I think that's a fairly safe generality for whatever year this is, 1937. Yeah. 38, I think is when the book was released. They, they, um, there's definitely, it, I read it like, there's just something that they feel like they have to preserve. So it's more important that they preserve the order of things than that they determine whether or not the degree to which Maxim was guilty. Mm. That's kind of how I read, I guess, the magistrate or whatever his role was. Heidi, what were you going to say? 
No, I agree. I think that that both of you are exactly right. The boys club question is interesting because in one sense, yes, right? (coughs) Yes, of course he was. They were, they're all, all the bros are trying to protect him and they're doing it because to preserve the social order um, because the British do not have the same, or at least at the time, <laughs> did not have the same modern tendency of Americans that who want to tear down their heroes, right? They want to protect them. And so, or the upper classes, right? Even the, even the lower classes desired to, they, they wouldn't rejoice in a fall the same way that we Americans do. And like, you know, Tiger Woods goes off the deep end and we're all like, I knew it the whole time, right? And we're like internally feeling smug. That's not at all. And we enjoy the spectacle. That's not the way that the British um, hierarchy was the, just the general kind of cultural perception of people like Maxim. Um, this is why I'm a monarchist. Me too. Um, I, no, you're not. <laughs> you're both not monarchists. Cut it out. Um. Anyway, that um, <laughs> sure. We should, yeah. we should set that up sometime. We should set that up sometime. Let's put that. Let's put that on a tee and just like talk it out. You want to talk? Everybody out wants a good the value of monarchy right. versus the value yes, of democracy. Let's absolutely, have that conversation. I'd love to have that conversation again. I've got some. Go ahead. Go ahead. I have some friends from church and like our some guys from our church and we have a group on Instagram where we chat and it's called bipolar bipartisans. <laughs> and we basically spend the whole time talking about whether democracy is better or monarchy is better. It's pretty much all we talk about all day long. Sounds fun. So, I I'm prepared. I'm prepared. I love that. I'm ready for that. Uh, I do think that he is acquitted or at least there's a desire for him to be acquitted because of the boys club. Again, I do not think De Maurier is indicting that. Go on. What do you yeah, mean? I don't. I, it's the same thing with Max. Indicting what? Indicting the boys' club. I do not think that her point is the oh, boys' yeah, club no. is bad and Maxim should have been convicted. So if he is let off by a boys' club, which I think is certainly part of it, of course, then it's not because she is pointing fingers at it. We might, as moderns, look at that and do that, but that's not what she was doing. I think that also the dawning sense in Cyril that he might be wrong about Maxim and maybe Maxim actually really did do it is a, uh, that's that's a big feature. And when faced with the opportunity, what like when faced with this kind of dawning realization that maybe Maxim really did murder Rebecca, Cyril is going to pursue the course of justice. He's not going to cover it up. Tim, you said you only had one time for one question. So he just gave me a cut, cut the scene threat. Well, maybe not threat. It was, it was was a gesture, a gesture. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. We didn't get to everybody's questions. There's no way we could have. There were so many questions. Thank you so much to everybody uh, for your conversation about this book all along. I'm, I apologize to all of you who I, I angered by being, uh, what's the word, facetious for a month straight. This has been a lot of fun. We really enjoyed talking about this book with, with you all. Do you, either of you have any final thoughts on this book that you want to offer? Tim, do you want to offer some final thoughts and then depart? I'm so glad that we read this book and I'm so glad there was so much heat in the conversation. I don't just mean like among the three of us. I mean on the Facebook page, especially like people care about this book. I love it. I love it. Well, speaking of books people care about, Jane Eyre is next and Karen Swallow Pryor will be joining us. And so I think we'll have plenty of good conversation on that. We're going to discuss the first five chapters. I think I said that at the top of the show, but uh, that's where we are. Tim, you will be 
not joining us for Jane Eyre, right? But you will be back for the following book when we dive into All the Pretty Horses, which is a book that you and I both love. And we are going to yell at Heidi about for about four weeks. I'm all in on this. Lucky Heidi. Well, yeah. Okay. So we've got some great books coming up. I think we're going to have a, we're going to have a really good time over the next few episodes. Check out the plays of thing. Check out the daily poem. Make sure you're subscribed. And again, thank you so much. Heidi, your turn for final thoughts before I we sign off. I don't have any final thoughts. I've spent so much time saying my thoughts. I'm all, I'm all out of thoughts. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you, I do not believe that for even one second, but you have seated the floor. And so we will, uh, we will end the episode. So for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to Logan Reed for uh, post-producing the episodes. And uh, until next time, happy reading. Mm-hmm.